This episode of Stuff You Missed in History Class is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. For a free trial and 10% off, visit squarespace.com slash history and enter offer code history at checkout. A better web starts with your website. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And uh, today's topic was inspired by uh, an event that I got to go to last week with, because I'm super lucky. I got to go see Neil deGrasse Tyson speak at Georgia Tech, uh, which was sponsored, I believe, by their physics department. And during his lecture, which was spectacular, if you ever get a chance to see him speak, I highly recommend it. Uh, he mentioned that most people do not realize what an epicenter of scientific and mathematical growth medieval Islam was. Uh, so naturally, I got all excited about it because it was fascinating. And Neil deGrasse Tyson was saying it, <laughs> which automatically puts it above uh, many other things on the interest scale. So we're going to talk about math today. Do not become scared or frightened. Like I know Tracy's mentioned before, arithmetic is not her jam. No, uh, I'm not particularly good at it. Well, and what's funny is arithmetic was really the the problem. Like, I loved geometry and I loved doing proofs. Mm-hmm. But when it came to, like, the arithmetic portions of the proofs, I would get things wrong. Same thing with algebra. Yeah. Like, my algebra theory would be sound and my arithmetic would be faulty. Yeah, I think that's pretty common. Uh, so we're going to talk about math, but really only sort of. There will be a couple of equations mentioned, but they're super duper simple and they stand as examples only. You do not have to solve for X or any other letter <laughs> while you are listening. Uh, I love math in theory, but like Tracy, the actual reality of it is not always my strong suit. So believe me when I say that the math that we mentioned is really, really basic. And I apologize to any mathematicians in the crowd that may have been hoping for more, <laughs> but that's that's not going to happen on this one. So today we are focusing on an Islamic mathematician named Al-Khwarizmi and his contributions to the development of algebra and mathematics in general with his ninth, ninth century writings. So if you're going to guess where algebra originated, you might guess uh, ancient Greece or ancient Rome. Even though we're talking about an Arabic scholar today, it's important to remember that algebra does not have just one single origin point. Uh, It developed over time and in multiple places with lots of different mathematicians contributing to the overall field of knowledge. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't like someone woke up one day and went, I'm inventing algebra. I'm imagining somebody just sitting bolt upright in their bed going, algebra. No, it arose out of a need for a way to calculate certain things. And we'll talk about that more specifically as we go on. Uh, the first traces of the concepts and fundamental ideas of algebra that we know of are from ancient Babylon. And these fall around about 2000 BCE. And then in the third century, uh, Diophantus of Alexandria, who is sometimes called the father of algebra, was writing extensively about algebraic equations and some of the, the concepts of algebra. Uh, there was also an Indian math scholar named Brahmagupta who was writing extensively in the 600s, and he's considered a major influence on Al-Khwarizmi. Muhammad ibn Musa Al-Khwarizmi was born around 780, and we don't know a lot about his early life, as is often the case with figures from that long ago. His exact place of birth is also kind of muddled by his name because it includes an origin signifier, but it's cited differently in various texts. We do know that he spent a significant amount of his life in Baghdad. And he grew up, as we know, to be a mathematician and an astronomer. 
And as an adult, he worked at the Dar al-Hikmah, or House of Wisdom. And the work of the House of Wisdom, which was a sort of scholarly academy that sometimes likened to the Library at Alexandria, focused on the acquisition and translation of texts from throughout the world. The House of Wisdom may have been established by Caliph Harun al-Rashid, but Caliph al-Mamun, who followed him, is often recognized as the man who really made it into a seat of scholarly discovery. And before we get into sort of the most famous book that uh, Al-Khwarizmi worked on, we're going to do a quick ad. So when that killer idea hits, you want to snag a domain name and get your web hosting squared away really quickly. And with Domain.com's quick domain discovery system and easy checkout process, you'll have your website up and running in no time. You've heard it here before. Domain.com makes it easy to get your website up and running. Blog, create the website to show off your films, showcase your portfolio. You can make money with your own site. There is no end to what you can do. Uh, we like Domain.com because they're affordable, reliable, and they're super easy to use. With our special offer, you can get 15% off their already affordable prices. Buy domain names, buy web hosting, or buy email when you use coupon code HISTORY at Domain.com's checkout. And when you think domain names, think Domain.com. Okay, so now we will get back to the work that is primarily talked about when people discuss al and his influence on algebra. And that was called Al-Kitab Al-Muqtazar Fi Hizab Al-Jabar Wal-Muqabla, or The Compendious Book on Calculation by Completion and Balancing. And it was written by Al-Khwarizmi and published through the House of Wisdom, which produced original works as well as working on all of the translations we mentioned. The introduction to this book notes that Caliph Al-Mamun and his thirst for scientific knowledge drove Al-Khwarizmi to take on this whole project. Yeah, that kind of supports the idea that Caliph Al-Mamun was really the one that that made the house of uh, wisdom flourish. And this book addresses the idea of balancing an equation across the equal sign in a systematic way, and it features examples of ways that this can be applied to fiscal transactions. And the book's goal was to provide, quote, what is easiest and most useful in arithmetic, such as men constantly require in cases of inheritance, legacies, partition, lawsuits, and trade, and in all their dealings with one another, or where the measuring of lands, the digging of canals, geometrical computations, and other objects of various sorts and kinds are concerned. The Al-Jabar portion of the Arabic title is what gave algebra its name in the Latin translation of the text several hundred years later in the 12th century. The actual translation of the Arabic word Al-Jabar is reunion or reunion of broken parts. Yeah, also uh, algebra, the word, is also associated with bone setters. Uh, So if you ever hear it used in that terminology, that's why they both share the same uh, words. And the words Jabbar and Mukabla signify operations in this early state algebraic problem solving of quadratic equations. Uh, Jabbar names the operation where a numerical value is eliminated from one side of an equation and incorporated onto the other side to solve for an unknown. So, for example, if x plus 4 equals 9, then the act of subtracting 4 from both sides to solve for x is the Jabbar step. Right. And mukabla is an operation which cancels out duplicate elements of an equation to balance it. So, again, for an example, if you start with x minus y equals 12 minus y, y can be eliminated from both sides of the equation to solve for x equals 12. Again, I apologize to the mathematicians in the crowd because I'm sure they're like, this is the silliest way to explain this. Uh, But we're keeping it very, very simple. 
In this book, Al Khwarizmi also establishes that all the problems that he talks about can be reduced down to one of six forms. And we should really note that he's speaking about them in terms of rhetoric and not as hard equations. Yeah, you don't actually see a lot of mathematical equations in some of the the translations they come about. But he basically was writing out like how to divide a thing by another thing. And it's not numerical at this point. And the book is laid out in three separate sections. And the first section is really the only one that speaks of algebraic concepts, though, again, they're not represented with figures, but they're written out. Uh, The second portion of the book, which is headed on business transactions, includes practical examples of measuring out ownership and proportions and also includes guides for measuring out geometrical shapes, such as cones and pyramids, uh, for the calculation of volumes and also for surveying needs. The third section of the book deals entirely with legacies, in other words, inheritances. Islamic inheritance law can be extremely complex and involves valuation of all the heirs, proportionate entitlement shares in relation to one another. So this last section of the book is composed entirely of example problems about dealing with inheritances. Yeah, it's uh, I've read a little bit about Islamic inheritance law, and I'm, I'm admittedly coming at it from a completely green perspective. It is so complex uh, the way they sort of measure out different people's what they're entitled to based on who else is in the family, the sex of people in the family. Uh, and it's all, you know, based in religious text. So it's something that is very serious, but it is very hard to um, figure out. So this was really hugely helpful. And I have to giggle a little bit at the fact that most school students today learning algebra, and I did it too, so I apologize to my many fabulous math teachers, is that they will never need this stuff in real life. But the whole point of al text is designed entirely to solve practical day-to-day problems that require mathematical computation. So it just kind of made me laugh. Yeah. That the origins of algebra are entirely in real life needs. Not in abstract things that you feel like you're learning yeah. for the same school. I will say I've used algebra in my day-to-day life sometimes. Yeah. I use it in my day-to-day life in the podcast to calculate... How many more things we have than we did (laughs) a month ago, because I am interested in that as trivia. Yeah. Uh, But that was not the only book written by Al Khwarizmi. No, there was another mathematical book, although we don't have the original text. The earliest example we have is a 12th century Latin translation. Uh, It boils down to Al Khwarizmi uh, concerning the Hindu art of reckoning. Yeah, and the original title was Algorithmi Numero Indorum. And this work was largely based on the work of an Indian mathematician, Brahmagupta, who we mentioned earlier, uh, who lived from 598 to 670, roughly. There isn't always consensus about the order in which Al Khwarizmi wrote his books, because the historical record is unclear. But we do know that the book on Hindu numerals came after the compendious book on calculation by completion and balancing, because it refers to the algebra in that volume. Yeah, it refers to that earlier book. Uh, and you likely noticed a uh, similarity between the first word of the Latin title, algorithmi, and the word algorithm, and that is absolutely no accident. Uh, algorithm came from the translation of al name, so he's responsible for two pretty big, fundamental, important words in mathematics. This book introduced the Indian numerical system into the Arabic world, and eventually to a greater audience. It features the numerals 1 through 9, plus the concept of zero, 
Zero as an idea had been toyed with by a few different cultures by this time, including the Maya and the Babylonians. So it's not as though Al-Khwarizmi just invented it out of whole cloth, but his translated texts identifying it in the Indian mathematical system made their way across Europe in the 12th century and helped cement the concept of a numeral to represent nothing. Yeah, there wasn't always a zero in computation. Nope. And if you're into the cultural identity of zero and its place in history, which is to me really fascinating, uh, there's a great book that I highly recommend called The Nothing That Is, A Natural History of Zero, and it's written by Robert Kaplan. Uh, I didn't really use it as a source for this, so it's not going to be in the source notes, but I wanted to mention it. I think we have How Zero Works as an article on How Stuff Works also. We do. Additionally, the Indian concept of decimal numbers is discussed in the book and eventually leads to the idea spreading as the work is translated and shared. Uh, Once again, this is an idea that had been blossoming in other places, including China. Yeah, I mean, he... uh Neither Brahmagupta nor Al-Khwarizmi were really the first to recognize that we needed some way to identify smaller parts of things. But this really kind of gave it a, a, a foothold in mathematical texts. And while we're focusing on mathematics and uh, how Al-Khwarizmi contributed to that field, we should also take a quick moment to discuss his work in geography and astronomy. A writing entitled Kitab Surat al-Arid, which translates to The Image of the Earth, was a geography book based largely on the work of Ptolemy in his book Geographia. Al-Khwarizmi built on what Ptolemy had established by calculating significantly improved measurements for several parts of the globe. And the Arabic scholar was also instrumental in creating what was one of the first world maps. His astronomy work encompassed calendars, the positions of heavenly bodies, and even eclipse calculations. He compiled a book of astronomical tables, which was translated into multiple languages, including Chinese. Uh, and before we talk about sort of how his work spread through Europe, we're going to take a quick pause for a moment. So back to Al-Khwarizmi. Yeah, Al-Khwarizmi died in 850, uh, so he never saw the introduction of his work to the European scholarly community. There's not a, a, much in the way of record of what he died from. He's believed to have died in Baghdad, where he had been living, but mm-hmm. that's kind of all we know. Robert of Chester, who was an Englishman working in Spain at the time, translated Al-Khwarizmi's algebra text in the 1140s. And this translation with a very lengthy intro is on archive.org, and we will put it in the show notes. It, as well as Al-Khwarizmi's other work, was also translated by Gerard of Cremona around 1150 and Guglielmo de Lunis around 1250. And once it was translated, Al-Khwarizmi's work became a significant influence on the European development of mathematics. And it was used as a standard textbook on algebra throughout Europe well into the 16th century. What made the introduction of algebra into Europe at this time so significant is that it moved away from the geometry-based mathematics of Greece. And it also expanded the mathematical landscape significantly. So rational and irrational numbers were welcome at the algebra table, and that allowed math to flourish in new ways. Yeah, it kind of just was a whole new gear of thinking about math and how numbers could be used. And I feel like I should mention a thing that I discovered while I was researching that was unbeknownst to me before uh, 
we had gotten into this topic, there are some very vehement folks in the world uh, with Internet presences who really, really want to discredit Al-Khwarizmi's contributions. And they're coming at it from an anti-Islamic mindset. And they seem to use the fact that Al-Khwarizmi was building on the work of mathematicians that came before him as some sort of like gotcha, like they caught him plagiarizing. And it kind of ignores the fact that virtually every line of academic research and discovery builds on what has come before and preceded it. And also the fact that sometimes certain concepts are developing independently in multiple places and cultures at one time or even at different times, but that aren't communicated. And I wanted to bring this up as I found it very troubling. Yeah. And it's really bizarre because some of these are kind of cloaked in a seeming academia layout. Like I would find these websites that I was like, oh, this is interesting. And I'm trying to fact check it. And some of this checks out. And then it would suddenly become like sort of really racist and weird. Yeah. And very like this proves that nothing good ever came from this part of the world. And I'm like, whoa, 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 back no. up the truck. What is going on here? Well, and I alluded to listener mail that we get like that sometimes in a recent when we were discussing uh the response to our crucifixion episode. Yeah. A couple of episodes back. Um, we will get listener emails from people sometimes who are wanting us, they like want us to debunk the contributions of George Washington Carver because he was really building on the work of people who came before him. And I'm like, okay, number one, that sounds extremely racist when you say that. Number two, all scientists are building on the work of the people who came before them. That is how science works. Like there are extremely few discoveries that come from a bolt from the blue. And yeah, eureka that, moments are far and few between. Even when they are eureka moments, they're eureka moments, as the saying goes, from on the shoulders of giants. Yeah. They're not from nowhere. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it was very, I mean, I was actually quite startled at some of it. Um, because it, it really, the focus is so, laser sharp that they really want to disprove that the Arab world contributed to mathematics. Now, I will say this, there are debates among modern math historians about how much of Al-Khwarizmi's work was original, how much of it was uh, taken directly from Indian and Greek scholars who preceded him. But I feel like that doesn't take away the historical significance of his works, whether they were, you know, how much was him building on things and how much of him was repeating things, these were still really important texts that spread through Europe and really changed the way people looked at numbers. Yeah. So they're significant in that regard, regardless of whether he was using the work of other people. Well, and we also have other historical figures who like their, their role in the world of history was archiving and preserving other language or other discoveries for later generations. Like a, a lot of uh, Alexandria's scholars weren't really, putting out new discoveries of their own, they're notable for having preserved all of this stuff. Yeah. And that has value. Yeah. Yeah. It was just, uh, it struck me, it took me by so by surprise and struck me as so odd and troubling that I wanted to mention it, particularly if any of our listeners, I know our listeners like us usually like to research things on their own. And uh, should you run across this? I want you to be prepared. <laughs> it is out there and you will find it accidentally and then be like, what? This took a left turn. Yeah. Uh, so always be smart. So do you have listener mail? I do. I sort of have a few different ones um, that I'll some. I'm not reading all of them, but I wanted to discuss a couple of them because there were several that kind of popped up that were either short or had something interesting. And I, I feel bad because when we only do one per episode, that's 
hundreds and hundreds that never get a moment. So. Right. Uh, first ours from our listener, Nancy, uh, who said, I just listened to the crucifixion episode and your conversation about mimeographing and that memorable smell, which led me to search the Internet for more information about this, since the only smell I remember from my mimeograph tests is a paper smell. And after a little digging, I discovered that the smelly machine was actually the spirit duplicator, a.k.a. the ditto machine. And apparently the mimeograph did not produce that smell. Yeah, I think people are using the words interchangeably. I know I am. I do. Uh, but I, it didn't even occur to me that there's a separation of the two. Yeah. Well, and now I wonder which exact machine, whether it was a colloquial use of mimeograph or whether it was an actual mimeograph. Yeah. Machine. And she also says that she's glad that as a teacher today, we have photocopiers. Yes. Well, uh, we also got uh, somebody on Twitter was like, hey, mimeograph is still around. Yes. I them. And I said, I, I said, genuine question. Who is buying mimeograph nowadays? I love the answer. The tattoo industry. It makes complete sense because they'll usually do like the someone who knows more about tattoos will know this better than I. But they do the like um, sort of test version that they'll transfer Mm -hmm. on before they actually ink. And I'm sure that's part of that. Yeah. So. So cool. Uh, And also, thank you for being a teacher, Nancy. That's a thankless job and it's very hard yeah and my second one is also from a teacher that i just wanted to call out because i love teachers okay it's funny because i feel like talking about math today some of uh my favorite teachers looking back on high school specifically were math teachers even though i was probably the biggest pain in their butt because i didn't understand what was going on half the time and i think i kept getting put in classes for advanced mathematics to keep my best friend who was a total brainiac happy mm-hmm. and i was like this struggling monster <laughs> was, i was like the bull in the china shop of mathematics i was no, like no. i don't understand any of this but i had so many great teachers who would really take time and and really cared about their jobs and they were amazing so thank you all uh but we also got a letter from a teacher named Colleen but she has taught high school french for 20 years and loves her job those That's two awesome. things together are like magic. I think you're a unicorn, Colleen, because 20 years and still loving your job is cool. And also, yay for teaching French. I probably uh, horrify you many times um, with my awkward uh, pronunciation, which used to be, I think, much better. And I have gotten quite rusty. And our third listener mail is from our listener, Bill. And this is the last one. And he says, one of the episodes that really inspired me while listening was the two-part Lions of Savo podcast. The unfortunate circumstances and often ridiculous situations that Patterson found himself in while hunting these beasts led to a one-act play, which I've just finished writing. I went out of my way to see the film adaptation when was not impressed with the liberties they took in telling the story. They do, of course, play up certain things for drama and add in a whole romantical thing that happens. Mm-hmm. I know that's not a real word. Um, and he says, I'm currently looking for smaller venues in Chicago to workshop the play, but I thought I would share my story of inspiration and I look forward to more episodes. Bill, that's so cool. I hope you keep us updated on how your play goes. Cause yeah. I love it. I, I'm thinking about ways you would stage that involving lions, but then I think it's done. It's uh, indoor running of the bulls. It's indoor. <laughs> Yes. And then, of course, I think of um, Julie Taymor's designs for The Lion King, which is a much different and bigger, you know, thing than a, a one act. But I, I do hope he keeps us posted. And if it gets staged, that we'll get pictures or something because it sounds fabulous. If you would like to write to us, you can do so at historypodcast at discovery.com. You can also connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash history, on Twitter at history, at mistinhistory.tumblr.com, and on Pinterest at pinterest.com slash history. We are also 
happily still tagging all of our uh, episodes on our still fairly newish website, which is mistedhistory.com. As of this episode, we are halfway through the tag. Woo! Tracy is really like the champion of tags. I do a couple here and there when they come up, especially when someone emails us and asks about an episode that that already exists that mm-hmm. they haven't found because we don't have the tags. I'll seek it out sometimes, but you're the champion of all things. Uh, <laughs> and if you would like to learn a little bit more about what we talked about today, you can go to HowStuffWorks.com and type in the word math and you will come up with an article called How Math Works, which was written by uh, Robert of Stuff to Blow Your Mind. Yeah. And it is a very cool article. And if you would like to learn about math or anything else that your mind can conjure, because I know not everybody loves the math, you can do that at HowStuffWorks.com as well. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Netflix streams TV shows and movies directly to your home, saving you time, money, and hassle. As a Netflix member, you can instantly watch TV episodes and movies streaming directly to your PC... Mac or right to your TV with your Xbox 360, PS3, or Nintendo Wii console, plus Apple devices, Kindle, and Nook. Get a free 30-day trial membership. Go to www.netflix.com and sign up now.